Welcome to the Flatline with your host, Rick Hughes. For the next 30 minutes, you'll be inspired, motivated, educated, but never manipulated. Now, your host, Rick Hughes. And welcome to the Flatline. I'm Rick Hughes, the host. Every Sunday morning, you hear us on this radio station, and every Sunday morning, I tell you, please stay tuned. 30 minutes of motivation, inspiration, education. Always done without manipulation. That means we don't play games. We don't con people. We're not soliciting money. We're not trying to get you to join up, fess up, give up, nothing like that. We're just trying to help you orient and adjust to the plan of God. Trying to verify it, identify it, so you can see it, so you can understand it. And hopefully, if you can, if I can do my job and you can, you can understand God's plan for your life, then you can flip the switch. You can use your volition to orient and adjust to that plan. You can find a phenomenal life that waits you in Christ Jesus. So thank you for listening. Remember, the flat line is all about establishing a main line of resistance in your soul, built around 10 unique problem-solving devices that stop the outside sources of adversity before they ever become the inside sources of stress. We all know that adversity is inevitable, but stress is always optional because even though adversity is what circumstances do to us, stress is, in fact, what we do to ourselves. The Christian life is the most unique life in the world, and it is a life free of stress. It's a life where you never have to worry, you never have to be afraid, you never have to live in guilt, you never have to have bitterness or antagonism. It's a wonderful, wonderful way to live, and it's the life Christ lived. Our Lord lived it. He demonstrated it. He was the prototype. He was the first, quote, Christian. He lived the life that he passed on to the disciples. And now they taught us about it, and now we can live that life also as well. In our last radio show, we started talking about after conversion being diverted. I called it diversion after conversion. I told you that diversion is you turning aside from your course. It's diverting your mind from the serious concerns that you should be thinking about. It's you taking a detour from your spiritual direction, which should be towards spiritual maturity, and going down the my way highway. You may have heard me say that a lot of times, but a diversion is something that distracts you from the more important issues in your life. We talked about how wealth could be a distraction, love could be a distraction, promotion, success, achievement. All of these things can distract you. And then I gave you a verse, and this is the verse we're studying. This is the verse we're looking at. This is Paul writing in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, where he said, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing shall I be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, and so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. We wanted to dissect that verse for you, to exegete that verse for you, to break it down, to see how Paul deals with diversion. And he, we started off with looking at the word, my earnest expectation. And we saw where this word, apokaradokia, the Greek word in the New Testament, where we translated it, earnest expectation. Apokaradokia means intense anticipation. Paul had a personal sense of destiny. And I told you last week that the personal sense of destiny is problem-solving device number six on the flat line of your soul. 
If you have our book, Christian Problem Solving, you can read about it. We've talked about it many times. And just to review a little bit, a personal sense of destiny requires you to understand the plan of God and how to utilize the provisions God provides for you. I said to you last week that you would never know God's plan for your life unless you learn some theology. Christian faith without basic theology is usually just an exercise in emotionalism. And we're not talking about being emotional. Emotions are fine. I, I have great emotions. I enjoy a lot of things, movies, fishing, uh, a lot of scenery. I enjoy emotion. But emotions don't rule my life. And no Christian should let emotions rule his life. Emotions are the bona fide appreciator of the soul, but not the dictator. You must live based on what you think and not what you feel. And emotions are based on feelings. So a personal sense of destiny that Paul anticipates is not an emotional thing. It's a, it's a provision from God that he knows is real. And if you have that provision in your soul, if you understand your personal sense of destiny, then you'll remember that Christ came into this world. Our Lord did. He had a personal sense of destiny. He knew what his destiny was from the day that he came. And that was to go to the cross and be the substitutionary death for our sins. In Matthew 16, 21, he told the disciples this. In Matthew 16, 21, from that time on, Jesus began to teach his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and the experts in the law, and be killed on the third day and be raised. <clears throat> I would call that a personal sense of destiny. He knew what was going to happen in his life. He told the disciples what was going to happen in his life. Each of us that are believers, we have the option to fulfill God's plan for our lives. And if we use the spiritual skills that he provided, we can do that. We can find our personal sense of destiny. We can have our earnest expectation, the one that, that Paul spoke of in that passage. But example in Matthew 22, 5, Jesus gave an illustration of a king that threw a party, and, and this was really about him and about his father and how the Jews had rejected him. In this illustration, he said these words, they paid no attention and they went their way, one to his own farm and another to his own business. Ignoring the invitation of the king to come into the family. Ignoring the invitation of the king to come to the party. And many people ignore the invitation that God gives through his son, Jesus Christ. So Paul said, according to my earnest expectation, my earnest expectation, listen, if you love God, which is your personal love for God, motivates you to obey God. 1 John 5, 3 says, this is the love of God that we keep his mandates and they are not a hard thing to do. They're not burdensome. Jesus told us in Matthew eleven thirty, my mandates are easy. My burden is light. And his destiny for me and his destiny for you is so much greater than anything that we could ever ask for, anything we could anticipate or even imagine. We have invisible assets. They were given to us to fulfill the plan of God in our life. And if we don't learn what they are, if we don't utilize them, then we are guaranteed that we will never live our life to our full potential. And that the best thing that could ever happen to you is you'll come to your grave frustrated over the failed opportunities in your life. You know, 
On occasion, we wish for hardships to be removed so our life would be easier. But last week, I mentioned to you where Paul talked about this in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9, where he said he had a thorn in his flesh, and he asked the Lord to take it away three times. And every time the Lord said, no, I will not. And he said, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my strength is made perfect in your weaknesses. And thus Paul said, most gladly then I will glory in my afflictions so that God's power will rest on me. So back to Philippians 1.20, according to my earnest expectations and my hope that in nothing shall I be ashamed. Hope, the word elpis is not the word we use. It's a different word. Elpis, expectations, my hope. When you have a personal sense of destiny, you have confident expectations. And those morph into absolute expectations. Absolute expectations about your eternal destiny. Absolute expectations about your spiritual destiny. The unbeliever, unfortunately, has no hope. There is no hope without God in the world. Ephesians 2.12 tells you that. <clears throat> so Paul said, excuse me, <clears throat> I think I swallowed a frog this morning. <clears throat> but it's working. So Paul said this, that in nothing shall I be ashamed. He didn't want to be ashamed. He didn't want to be disfigured or dishonored. Aishkuno was the Greek word. And this is a shame that causes uh, regret. There are shames. We, we can have shame in our life. There's a shame from something we did where guilt overwhelms us or shame even at the appearance of Christ. Some people will have shame. First John 2.28 and now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If there's any one thing you don't want to hear, you don't want to hear the Lord say, have a seat, I'll get to you in a few thousand years. <laughs> you know, there are people that will be in heaven, and there are people that have eternal life, but they will never hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. They got diverted the diversion was too great after their conversion. They never learned God's protocol plan. They never fulfilled their personal sense of destiny. They never had any absolute expectations about what their life should be around. And all they did was like a dog chasing his tail in circles. Paul said, I, I with all boldness, I don't want to be ashamed. Nothing do I want to be ashamed. But with all boldness as always, so now also Christ be magnified in my body, whether it be by my life or by my death. With all boldness, parousia is the Greek word, and it means openly confident, fearless, outspoken. And listen, this is not judging people. Judging people is a sin, but standing bold with the truth of the scriptures is not a sin. That's an awesome thing. But in Matthew 7, 1 through 7, we find the triple compound discipline that a believer gets into when he judges another person. It's a very interesting passage. Maybe you should read it. Write it down. Read it later. Matthew 7, 1 through 7. Judge not, lest you be judged, for with what judgment you judge, it will be measured back to you again. And basically what the passage is saying is this. If you stick your nose in someone else's business, you're going to get disciplined for that. And secondly, that even if they did something wrong, 
and you evaluate them and judge them and don't let the Lord handle it, you step in and you play God, then their discipline will be taken off of them and given to you. So you're going to have their discipline, your discipline, and self-induced misery. And that's triple compound suffering right there. So the worst thing any believer can do is to stick their nose into the life of another believer and judge them. Someone goes through a divorce, someone goes through some hardship and you take sides and you begin to claim the other person was guilty or this person's guilty and I know what went on, you don't have a clue and you're not qualified to judge anybody. Only the Lord knows. And so stay out of other people's business. But you can be bold. Yes, Paul spoke openly of Jesus Christ in every venue that he visited. In the synagogues, he spoke boldly about Christ. Listen to Acts 9.20. And immediately after his conversion, he preached Christ in the synagogues, that he, Jesus, is the Son of God. Paul carried the message of faith alone to the Gentiles. In Acts 13.46, then Paul and Barnabas grew bold, and they said to the Jews who opposed his message, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing that you put it from you, and you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what happened. His boldness was not without cost, and Anytime you boldly stand upon the word of God, there is a cost to be paid. Our Lord told the disciples they would have to pick up their cross and follow him, indicating that as he was assassinated, tortured, killed, they probably are going to face the same thing. And in fact, they were all martyred, except John, who was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. So Paul had his difficulty. In Acts fourteen nineteen. And there came there certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and had Paul stoned and drew him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And nevertheless, as the disciples stood around him, he rose up, he came back into the city the next day, and he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Yes, they tried to stone him, and they tried to kill him. In Acts sixteen sixteen, he was thrown into prison in Thyatira, because he healed a demon-possessed fortune teller. And the owners of the woman had him arrested and beat him with whips before they threw him into prison because he bankrupt their, their business. He healed their fortune teller and no longer could she use demons to call up the future. Do you think if these things happened to you, thrown into prison, beat with a whip, stoned, do, do you think you would be a little more cautious about talking and lifting up Christ, if these things happen to you, Paul wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't concerned about it. He went right on, right on. And then he said, in all things, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. Magnified. Megaluno is the Greek word, megaluno, and it means to be enlarged. What is the process? And here's the question I need to ask you today. What is the process for magnifying Jesus Christ in your body? I mean, if you and I were having a conversation and I said to you, I want you to magnify Christ in your body, how would you do that? I mean, that's a nice-sounding cliche, right? 
Well, here is the process. First of all, in Philippians 1.21, Paul said, for me to live is Christ. So there are two lives. I mean, you can live your life for you, or you can live your life for him. Paul had determined that he would live his life for Christ. You must make that decision. Either you're going to live for the Lord Jesus Christ, or you're going to live for yourself. That doesn't mean you can't have time alone to do what you want to do. It just means that you have to set your priorities, and your priorities always have to be Jesus Christ first. We're told in Philippians 2, 5 that we are to have the mind that he had. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the one of the ways that you magnify Christ in your body. You begin to think like he thought. Now, he had a humility profile. He was humble, and he was obedient. And two things you must have if you're going to magnify Christ in your body is you must have humility, not arrogance. And you must have obedience, not disobedience. You must be humble enough to accept God's plan and obedient enough to obey it. You know, arrogance always justifies why it's right and everyone else is wrong. Arrogance always deludes itself and has an unrealistic self-image. That was not the way our Lord lived. He knew exactly what his destiny was. He knew who he was, and he was obedient to the Father's plan you remember that night in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done? That's the same prayer you have to pray. Not my will, Father, but thy will. What have you destined me to do? What is my destiny? In Philippians 3.8, Paul said, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. So whatever he had done in the past was nothing. Whatever accomplishment he had in the past was nothing. They're all, as we, we call it the scubala metaphor, they were all dung, he said. The only thing that was important is knowing Christ Jesus his Lord. The excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. You know, there you, you can... There's two words for knowledge in the Bible. Gnosis is one of the Greek words we use, and the other is epinosis. Epi is a preposition, which means full. So one word, gnosis, is knowledge, and the other word, epinosis, is full knowledge. The full knowledge of Jesus Christ is you having enough obedience and enough humility to learn his plan and to submit to his plan and to allow him to live his life through you. In other words, you replicate Jesus Christ and represent him to your community. There's only one way you can do that. And I'll explain that. In Philippians 3.14, Paul said, I keep pressing towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So this is a continual thing your whole life. Your whole life, you have to have one priority. If you want to magnify Jesus Christ in your body, there can only be one priority. I think Matthew 6 says, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then he'll provide anything you need. That priority means you must learn to think like he thought, under humility and obedience. 
The only way you can do that is to Peter nails it in 2 Peter 3.18. Here's what he says. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So the Christian life must be grown. You have to grow. You start off as a baby Christian, and then you become a student without really any type of portfolio, and then eventually a mature believer. You must grow to maturity. And the only way you can grow, you grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, you're acquiring more and more knowledge and utilizing the grace assets that he provided for you. Well, how do you get this knowledge? If it says grow in knowledge, how do you get it? 2 Timothy 2.15 says study. Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You must learn, learn, L-E-A-R-N, learn. Matthew eleven twenty eight. take my yoke and learn of me. I'm meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Learn, study, grow. Unless you have a consistent time in your life, where you are studying God's Word and applying God's Word, you are not growing and you are not replicating Christ. You're not representing Christ. <laughs> I don't know what you're doing. You're living under the emotional thing of the my way highway down the road for Jesus. That's not the Christian life. It's a lot more than that. It's actually Christ in you. It's the mystery doctrine of the church. No one ever thought of that before. No one ever saw that before. No one dreamed of anything like this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's not in the tabernacle. He's not the pillar of fire or the cloud. He's in you. Your body is the tabernacle, according to 1 Corinthians. He lives in you. And he wants to be magnified through you. Therefore, in Ephesians 5.18, you're told to be filled with the Spirit. The only way that you can do this is to allow the Holy Spirit to shape and form your soul. You know, Jesus said, I'm going to go away and I'm going to send my Spirit. He will be your mentor, your tutor, and he will lead you and guide you into all truth. He'll tell you what to say. He'll give you the right words at the right time. But you have to allow God's Holy Spirit to fill you and control you, and that's the first problem-solving device. Rebound restores the filling of the Spirit when we sin. When we sin and when we break fellowship with God, we must rebound. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all of our wrongdoing. Rebound doesn't mean we'll never sin again. It means we are cleansed from our sin. We, in essence, as John 13 did, have our feet washed. Jesus washes our feet from the defilement of sin when we go and confess our sin. It's that simple. We must be filled with the Spirit. And Galatians 4.19 says, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again, until Christ be formed in you. That's what the deal is. Christ must be formed in you. And so he said, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. In my body, you have a body, you have a soul, 
You have a spirit. You have all of these things. You're, there are three of you in there. And the body is that which other individuals can see. The body is what people can meet and talk with and observe. But this is not Christ being formed in my body. That's not a holier than thou attitude where you walk around like the Pharisees did. Self-righteousness. Where you walk around acting all holy. Hello, brother. Hello, sister. Praise the Lord, brother. You know, people are such phonies when it comes to that sometimes. This attitude that I'm talking about is a grace attitude. It's an attitude of patience. It's an attitude of non-judgmental forgiveness and caring. It's an attitude of comforting and sharing and giving and being a person who understands impersonal as well as personal love. This sort of person causes other people to wonder what makes you different? When you become a light in the darkness of this world, people are attracted to you. And so Paul said, whether it's by life or by death, the two phases that we live, life and death, for me to live as Christ, he says, and to die, well, that's just profit. The Greek word for profit is kurdos, meaning gain and advantage. It's an advantage to die, to go to heaven. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. The old things are passed away. You cannot believe what God the Father has for you there. And that's to your advantage. You don't realize it now because we're human. We, we don't know we're living in a cesspool. But we are. I can assure you, anyone in heaven if the Father told them, how would you like to go back for a few years? They would say, are you kidding me? I want to go back to live in a toilet? <laughs> no. We live in a cesspool. It's the devil's world. It's defiled with sin. We have defilement in our own body because we are identified with Adam and we have Adam's original sin, our old sin nature. That's a battle in itself. The Bible says we war against the flesh and the devil and the world. We're living in the angelic conflict. And Paul said, I want nothing more than to magnify Christ in my body. That's what I want for you after your conversion. Not to be diverted, not to be distracted, but to represent Jesus Christ and magnify him through your body, whether by life or by death. I sure hope you're listening, and I sure hope it's making sense to you. We're having a little problem with our website, so if you try to contact us, be patient. We'll get it corrected. Until next week, this is your host, Rick Hughes, saying thank you for listening to The Floodline. Thank you for listening to The Floodline with your host, Rick Hughes. If you'd like to contact Rick, please write to him at P.O. Box 100, Cropwell, Alabama, 35054, or online at www.rickhughesministries.org.